Welcome, welcome. Good to be with you today. Um, so we are, we are beginning a new series, a five-week series this morning on uh, our church's distinctives. And it's important to note that when we're talking about our distinctives, we're not talking about necessarily how we are distinct from other churches, but how, how some of our values are distinct from other competing values. We are different from churches, from some churches in some ways, um, but what we want to talk about is the sort, of, um, the sort of flavor of our church here and the things that we have pursued uh, in contrast to some of the other things that we could have pursued or been identified with. So these, these are the things that, that really mark our church in, in both very large ways and in very small ways. It's sort of what you, what you feel at Redeemer when you get here, or if you've been here for any length of time, what you begin to feel, even if you don't have a name for it or a word for it or hadn't thought about it in those categories, um, they make a big impact. So these distinctives are going to, God willing, we'll spend the next five weeks going through these five distinctives, and, and they are these, and we'll talk, we'll talk a lot more about these each of these weeks, but God-centeredness, maturity, multiplication, family discipleship, and ministry to the least of these. So that's what we're going to spend the next five weeks on. And this morning we're going to start uh, right where I think we should start. We're going to start with this first distinctive of God-centeredness. Now this is, of course, a distinctive that sort of weaves its way into all the other four, but I think it merits some attention on its own right. If you've got a Bible, open with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3. We've got Bibles there, uh, back there in the back. If you need a Bible, you can grab one of those. Um, Pull it up on your phone. Ephesians 1. I'll wait just for a second because I'd love for you to see this and read it for yourself as well. This is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. And he says this. This is, this is actually one long sentence in Greek. So it's this one consistent idea. In fact, I think it goes all the way to 14 with this one sentence. But we'll just read the uh, 3 through 10. Paul says, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. <clears throat> Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Are you seeing a theme here as Paul's writing this note? Which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through what? His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So this is, this is from beginning to end, right? This is before uh, creation to the fullness of time. He has this plan that he has been working. Why? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God, we pray this morning that we would uh, reorient our lives around you as the center. God, help us. Help us to see the the competing idols of our heart, our own competing uh, selfishness. I got help. We, we pray that you would give us the strength that, to, to dethrone those. 
and to bend our knee to you and to let our lives and all the things of our lives orbit around that one center reality that you are God and that we are not. And so, God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do we, what do we mean when we say that word? It, it sounds like a very churchy, a very theological word. Well, what do we mean when we talk about God-centeredness? I think it is actually a great word, but what do we mean? What do we mean when we say that this is a distinctive at Redeemer, distinct from what? Distinct from what? Well, God-centeredness is, of course, sharply distinct from man-centeredness. And, and we may think, oh, yeah, of course we're God-centeredness and not man-centeredness, but are we? Are we? Because God-centeredness is, in, is sharply distinct from man-centeredness. And I don't just mean selfishness. That's part of it, right? But it's, it's much bigger than that. I mean this belief and this trust and this reality that God and not man is the center around which everything else should revolve. One writer puts it this way, this, the, the biblical mindset, the right mindset, starts with the assumption that God and not man is the center of reality. All biblical thinking starts with the assumption that it's God who has basic rights as the creator of all things. He has goals that fit with his nature and his perfect character. The biblical mindset moves out from this center and interprets the world with God and his rights and his purposes and his goals as the measure of all things. Every life has a center. What's yours? What's yours? Each of us, all of us have a center in our lives, a thing that everything else circles around. So what's yours? Is it, uh, maybe for some, it's, it's, it's financial stability or, or financial independence? Maybe for some, it's entertainment it's, it's pleasure-seeking, it's hobbies. What's your center? For some, it's the enjoyment of just material goods. For some, it's career advancement. For others, it's addiction. Their lives revolve around their addiction. Maybe for some, even here, the, the, and we see this with our brothers and sisters in Africa, for some, it, it's, it's survival. What is that center for you? Maybe for, maybe for many of us, it's just that we are so firmly placed on the, on the throne at the center of our lives that everything, any given moment, uh, is shaped by whatever our inclinations and our desires and our proclivities are in that one given moment. Who is the center? What is the center of your life? What, what most shapes how you make decisions day in and day out? Really? I mean, just be honest with yourself, right? Be honest with yourself and ask yourself, what, what are those variables that I'm calculating, that I'm considering, that shape all the decisions of my life, the plans of my life, the goals of my life? One commentator put it this way, a God-centered life is one that revolves around the character of God. Decisions are made within that center based upon what pleases or displeases him. So are you asking yourself as you're engaging in this life that God has put you in, does this please God or displease God? Is that even a factor in your decision making? Maybe for some of us, right, we're all here at church on a Sunday morning. Maybe for some of us, religion is the center of our lives and everything else 
revolves around that. And that really is deceptive. Because we can be religion-centered and not God-centered. In fact, we can be religion-centered and very much man-centered in how we live our lives and even think about God. One writer put it this way, a fine but distinct uh, uh, line exists between being God-centered and religion-centered. Many religion-centered people think that their lives revolve around God, but they don't. They are enslaved to a religious system. Many religions focus so much on our strict performance and our strict standards of performance that our, our relationship with God himself is pushed to the side. Right? What's, what's important is about what, what I am doing for God and my ability to prove myself and my ability to position myself in a place to be approved of. But religion-centered life can be a terrible substitute for a God-centered life. Being God-centered means that everything we do, everything about us revolves around the person and the work that God has finished for us in Christ, not about the work that we are to do for God. And this, I think, is what Paul is, is illustrating here in this beautiful passage in Ephesians 1, right? From, from before the beginning of time, from before the beginning of creation, to the fullness of God, or to the fullness of time, God is in absolute control. He is at the absolute center, right? This, this short passage, this one sentence sort of encompasses all of reality from beginning to end. That, that it's God who's blessed, that it's God who blesses us in Christ, that it's God who chose us, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That it was God who existed before creation. That it was God who predestined us for adoption to himself, for his purposes. To the praise of his glorious grace. I won't even read all these passages this morning. I have a long list as I was making notes this week about all the, all the references in scripture from beginning to end about, I, I saved you for my name's sake. God says, I rescued you for my name's sake. I delivered you for my name's sake. He, Paul goes on, in him we have redemption and forgiveness because of what? His grace. God reveals his will to us according to, not our purposes, but according to his purposes. God has a purpose for creation. And that's important. That's an important word for us as we consider this idea this morning that we are creation not creator. We are creation and not creator, so we should be considering the goals and desires and purposes of our creator more than our own. Now, why did he do all this? Paul goes on. Why did he, why did he bless us and choose us and, and redeem us? He says in verse 10, to unite all things, to bring all things together in him, things in heaven and things on earth, because that was his plan from the beginning to the end of time. All of our life, every little bit of our life, makes sense only in light of the purpose of our creator. It would be foolish, right, for the cup to say to the one who formed it, I have my own agenda for myself. We're creation, not creator. What is your center? What is your center? Where do, you, where do you start when you're making decisions or plans? And where do you hope to end up? How much are you considering what pleases or displeases God? Now, why is this important? Why is this idea, and I, and I hope to get here in just a minute, really, really practical. Why is this important for us? 
When we, when we throw around a word like God-centeredness, what, what does that really mean for us? Why is that important? Well, it's important for a lot of reasons, but it's important primarily because that's the way things actually are. You understand? If, if we live under the delusion that we ourselves are the center of reality, if we live under the delusion that, that this particular thing or this other thing or this thing in our life, that's really the center, that's the thing that shapes the rest, we are living a lie. And we actually miss out on what it means to be alive as people that God's created with his image. You know, I love the way the Bible begins, right? Many of you probably know this verse in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, right? That's, that's where the Bible starts. That's where the story of creation starts. In the beginning, God, not in the beginning, man, right? But in the beginning, God, the creator, he made heaven and earth. There's no explanation, right? There's no defense, there's no apology, there's no argument. It's just the simple, matter-of-fact truth in the beginning, God. God. James Montgomery Boyce says that this is, in some senses, the most important verse in all of Scripture. And I think he's right, because this idea, if you, if you begin from that space, or, or let me put it this way, if you don't begin from that space, of God being the center of reality, of God being the most important thing in the universe, if you don't begin there, then nothing about our lives will ever truly make sense. We'll always be struggling to see how this fits into that, or this makes sense with that, or what are we here for, or where do we come from, or what is this all about? God is the thing that makes sense of all those fundamental questions. In the beginning, God. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which I think Jonas is reading it right now. Uh, great, great book, by the way, by, if you haven't read it, strongly encourage it. But he, he, he writes this, and bear with me for a second. He says, when God talks, and this is, this Screwtape Letters, if you're not familiar, it's this fictional account, of course, uh, and C.S. Lewis, who's a Christian at this time, he's writing uh, essentially from one devil to another, right? From Screwtape to his protege, Wormwood, And so he's trying to tell him how to mess up the lives of Christians. And he says, when, when God talks of, of Christians losing themselves, he means only that they should abandon the clamor of their own self-will. Because once they have done that, God gives them back all of their personality. And he boasts, I'm afraid, sincerely, and hear this, when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. When we are wholly his, that is when we are most ourselves. And this is what many of us are, are struggling for, right? We, we want to know who we are, what we're about, where we're going, and why. We are, we are a people obsessed with our own rights, right? We're obsessed with our own purposes. We're obsess obsessed with our own desires. But since we are creation and not creator, these will never truly satisfy us. These will never truly even come to fruition in our lives until we begin with the rights and purposes and goals of the one who made us. In the beginning, God. Max Turner commenting on this passage in Ephesians 1 says, this is a call for us to worship. What Paul's doing here is this passage is designed to lift the reader's eyes away from themselves, right? Away from our fears and focus it on the majesty and the love of God. Revealed in this unfolding plan from beginning to end of creation. And, and we understand finally our privilege of being included in his plan. We are not supremely sovereign. 
God is. We are not creator. We are not designer. We are not the one who understands the in and outs of all of creation. We don't know the future. We have a hard time judging the past. We have an even harder time living in the present. But God, who is there, ever-present, understands us, knows us, knows how all things fit together. And he says, if, if you have anything else in the center of your life sitting on that throne, your life will not make sense. He is what makes sense of it. John Piper wrote, and he's got a lot of good to say about this idea. He says, God's love for man does not consist in making man central, but in making himself central for man. The cross does not direct man's attention to our own vindicated worth, right? It redirects our attention to God's vindicated righteousness. We understand that he is supremely right in the world. But this is precisely what love is. He goes on, he says, this is love because the only full and everlasting happiness of a man is a happiness focused on the riches of God's glory. Creation only understands its place in the hands and according to the purpose of its creator. That's what love looks like. Do you begin with God and his rights and his goals? Or do you begin with your own rights and your goals and your own purposes? How are you making those decisions? Is it your joy that God is central or is it your joy that you get to make your own decisions? What is it for you? Paul in Colossians 1, it's a beautiful passage. He says, for by him all things were created. So think about the things in your life, right? Your job, your relationships, your stuff, your money, your, your experiences. All things, all things were created by him. In heaven and on earth, the, the visible things, the invisible things, thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things. Paul, Paul's belaboring the point, right? All things. I want, I'm going to make sure you don't miss it. All things were created, why? Through him. And for him. He is before all things. He is in all things. All things are held together in him. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he, not us, might be preeminent. Another writer goes on to say, if God is to love us, what must he give us? Right? If God loves us, what must God give us? If God loves us, what must he demand be in the center of our lives? Himself, right? Himself. He must give you what is best for you. He must give you the thing you most desperately need. He must give you the best thing in the universe, which is him. If he were to give you, this writer goes on, if he were to give you all perfect health, a perfect body, a perfect job, the, the, all the money that you could want, Right, the perfect relationship, the, the, the most amazing experience. If he were to give you all of those things and yet withhold himself, he would hate you. But if he, if he were to give you himself, open himself up to you, to me, even if he withheld everything else, he would be loving us supremely. You see, when we talk about being God-centered, and this is important, when we talk about being God-centered, when we talk about our theology being God-centered, it's not because other issues don't matter, right? You understand that? It's not because the other issues of our life don't matter. It's because they matter so much that we must realize that God must be the one that ultimately shapes and conforms all the other areas of our life to his purposes. 
So what does this look like in real life? What does this look like in, in my life and in your life? What does it look like in the life of our church? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just give you a few uh, thoughts that I have this week. Hopefully they'll be helpful. Helpful. What does it look like for Redeemer? I was thinking about this, and Marcus and I had some conversations earlier this week, but at Redeemer, um, especially thinking through this moment now, our our Sunday morning experience together, we want to be sharply focused on the person and work of God, right? Now, you may think, oh, yeah, sure, you know what, everybody does, right? Well, here's what we mean by that. We we mean that we want to prioritize our engagement with God, right, over our entertainment and experience. We, we, we want to prioritize our, our reliance on Jesus in these moments more than just our personal self-reflection. Do you see how that we're beginning to shift the focus from how is this all about me to what is this teaching us about the Lord? We want to move, us, move from, from being personality-driven, from whoever happens to be on the stage, right, or even the general personality of our church, we want to move past that to being person-focused solely with our attention focused on Christ. We prioritize God's revelation and scripture over our own personal opinions. We, We prioritize our obedience over our experience in this moment. In this way, you may notice, I hope that you notice, I hope that you notice in many ways, our sermons aren't self-help, Right? Our sermons are, are not primarily instruction for moral improvement. That's not primarily what we're about. They're not primarily about our purposes and about our goals, but on our desperate need to repent and receive forgiveness through the finished work of God in Christ. That's a different focus. Do you see it? Do you see how your attention begins to shift from how is this moment all about me and what I get out of it to what is this moment showing me, revealing to me, teaching me, making alive in me the person and work of God. Now, we're not always going to get it right. We're not always going to get it right. Mark is probably more than me, but, you know, even us, we're not going to get it right. But that's our goal. What does this look like for us as individuals? Think about even as you pray. As you're praying, are you primarily thinking just about you? Are you, are you thinking first about you? Are you, are you praying first about you and your needs? And, and don't misunderstand me, church. Of course we're supposed to pray for ourselves and for our friends and family and for our needs. God knows our needs. We should bring those needs to him. But I want to ask, at what point in your prayer do you give any consideration to simply who God is. I don't know about you, but I get, I'm, I'm very easily distracted in my prayer life, right? Maybe I'm the only one, but I'm very easily distracted in my prayer life. And so I have just established this very simple, uh, that I use this very simple formula. I didn't make this up, but I came across it years and years ago, of, of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. We've talked about this before as we've talked about prayer more in depth. But so, so you see that acronym ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So I start my prayer. I have to do this for myself, for my own soul. I start my prayer with adoration. Just praising God for who God is. Apart from my circumstances, whether they're good or bad, apart from whatever I've experienced, but just God in his own right. I I, I take a moment to give God space and to confess that he is good. 
I confess that he is creative. I, I confess and I rejoice that he is all-loving, that God is all-knowing, that God is merciful, that God is gentle. Not, not just that he's merciful and gentle with me, but that is the God that we serve. That's the God who made us. So I'm going to ask you in your prayer, what time, what attention, what space do you give to reflect on not just where you're at in the moment, but who God is in eternity, that he is, that he is all-seeing, that he is present with us, that he is accessible to us as God. What about when you read scripture? What about when you read scripture? Do you read primarily to learn principles that will help with your life in this moment now so that teach you what you need to do to accomplish your goals and to fulfill your purposes? Who's the hero when you're reading? Is it mainly about you or mainly about God? That's what Jesus is saying, right, throughout the Gospels. He's saying, you know what, you've missed it. You've been thinking that you're, you're going to find life in these passages, but it's, it's me that they're referring to. It's about a person, not a principle. How much are you considering the person over the principles? How much are you considering God? Are you, are you giving space to meditate on his word? We did that the other night with the men in our Bible study. We didn't, we didn't want to just read the scripture. That's important. But we wanted to meditate on it. We wanted to consider what God is saying and revealing to us about himself. And again, as we grow in our understanding of our creator, when we grow in our understanding of what his goals are, what his purposes are, what his desires are, it's, it's only then that we'll become, uh, we, we'll, that we'll understand what our rights and goals and purposes and desires should be because we are created. And the question ultimately is, what were we created for? What were we created for? What about your relationships? Relationship with your kids, or your spouse, or your friends, or your parents, or whatever. What about your relationships? Are they primarily to make you happy, or is God using them to make you holy? How do you view those relationships? How do you interact with those relationships? What, what are your relationships telling the world about God? Are they saying anything about God? Because you don't really have the luxury of saying nothing because you realize that they are saying something. As you profess the name of Christ, they are saying something in the word about God. And they could either be saying that God is very important or God's not very important at all. That God's vision uh, has shaped my relationship in my life or it hasn't. What's, what's shaped you most? What shapes your relationships? What about your work? Who do you work for? Do you work for your boss? If it's, just, if it's just that, it starts to feel depressing, right? Every time you get your check and you see all the taxes taken out, you think, am I really working just for this? Are you working just to please other people in your life? Are you working just to make money? Or are you working as unto the Lord? What, who are you working for and why are you really working? Are, are you working to, to serve and to create and to produce, to be a blessing to the people that God has put around you, to, to be a blessing to the people that, are, that benefit from your work or your company? And of course, I understand our lives are rarely so cut and dry, right? 
It's not so easy just to say, oh, well, I, yes, I, I very clearly, my motives are only driven right now as working for the Lord and to serve and to use my gifts that he's created me to use and to, to give in that sort of way. Or is it just about making money and providing for your family? Well, it's both, right? It's both. But I, I want to ask you, how do you view that scale? How much are you considering your work as service, as using gifts, as a way, as an opportunity to tell the world about who God is, why he's made you, and how good he is to you? Marcus read that passage, such a beautiful passage from Paul in Romans 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. All right? Again, consider your life. Consider your money, consider your relationships, consider, consider your schedule, consider your family, consider your hobbies, consider all the stuff that, that fills up our lives. From him and through him and to him are all things. What is your center? What is your center? What is the one reality that all the other things in your life orbit around what is a central figure or idea or purpose that shapes all the rest of your life is it just about being experiencing pleasure is it just about um, being accepted by those around you scott clark says the heart of the gospel it's not about us the heart of the gospel is what Christ has done for us. This was the essential essence of Paul's message that Christ came for us to do for us what we could not and would not do for ourselves. It was Jesus who obeyed, Jesus who was crucified, Jesus who was resurrected, and Jesus who ascended to the Father. It's his story. We are recipients. We are beggars. We, we receive this gift of grace that God has given us. He is the hero and not us. What is the center of your life? What shapes everything else for you? Let me just end on this note. I want to take one more moment to read this passage from Ephesians 1. And Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I studied uh, my undergraduate, I studied biblical languages. Um, and part of when I, you know, if you don't keep up with something like that, you lose it pretty quickly, and I've lost a great deal of it. But one of the things that has stuck with me through that process, if you ask me what would be the biggest benefit of studying something like biblical languages, right? That's not how you get the, like, best, highest paying job, right? Uh, it's not what gets the ladies, right, studying biblical languages. But the thing that it taught me more than anything else was how to read slowly, how to read slowly. And so I want, I want to encourage you guys, even in this moment, I hope that you're looking at your Bible, looking on your phone, reading this with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, why? So that we should be holy. So that we should be blameless. Not just for our sake, but before him. 
It says, in love, motivated by love, he predestined us for adoption to bring us into the family, adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Christ Jesus. Why? It was according to the purpose of his will. He he knows our hearts, he knows our lives, he knows our personalities, our temptations, our inclinations. And he's saying, I am creating them to bring them in closer to the family to to experience me because that is my plan for them since before the creation of the world. Why? To praise his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved and in him, in God, we have redemption through his blood. Through his sacrifice, we have the blessing, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. He just poured it out. He, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and all insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. He's bringing us into this mysterious relationship of of being children of the creator. He takes creation and he makes us children. And he brings us in because he is good. Because of the riches of his grace, he just poured it out on us in all wisdom and insight according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. That's forever, right? So before the creation of the world, till the end of time, God says, this is what I'm doing with people. I'm moving them from simply just being creation to being children through adoption into my family. I'm bringing them close in. I am just pouring out my love and grace because I have a plan for them. And my plan is to unite all things to myself. Things in heaven and on earth. I'm going to ask you, what's your center? What's your center? There's only one center. There is only one reality. There is only one person around which your life can orbit that will make sense of all the rest. Let's pray together.